Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Part three of Errol Flynn on Foibles. This is our third section, and this is where we're really going to have the fun. But before we get started on talking about the movies and what we recommend, I just wanted to go over a few things that I forgot or thought of later that are of interest. First of all, I want to correct the fact that Olivia de Havilland in Captain Blood was not 17. She was 19. Just, that's important. That's important. Okay. And that uh, I talked a lot about the love affair. Well, whether it was a consummated affair or not is up, open to question. The there, attachment. The attachment, the love between Errol and Olivia, which was apparently very intense, but never really uh, went forward in terms of a real relationship, a love relationship. Had a lot to do his, with his behavior. And I think I forgot to mention that he did put a dead snake in her underwear drawer. And that kind as a of prank. as a prank, and that kind of showed her that this wasn't her kind of guy. Because even at nineteen, she was pretty smart. She was a very, very intelligent woman. So she was not going for that. But um, I did hear, I did read that someone reports. So take it for what you will. That she did pretty much say that they had consummated their relationship sexually. So I wouldn't be surprised. I'm probably pretty sure that they did, but it never ended up being anything permanent. And I don't know that I mentioned that Flynn wrote his autobiography in the last year of his life. It was called My Wicked, Wicked Ways. And uh, if I didn't mention that, he was a mythomaniac. And he, he liked to make himself worse than he was in certain ways. And then make himself better. Like, make himself more bro-y and more, you know, like... he exaggerate the number of women he slept with or... Well, but more like, what a good chap he was. And how he was really loyal and to his friends and so on and so forth so there is that part of him too and he just makes up a bunch of stories that he thinks are good stories so he's a great raconteur in that way so you can take that for what it's worth if you read that one and the other thing that I wanted to just highlight for people if they really are going to watch a bunch of Errol Flynn movies it's very interesting the uh, we're going back to the rape trial now if you're just tuning in now go back and listen to previous episodes and we'll go over that whole situation for you but what happened was he did become quite the butt of not just jokes they twisted his persona as a Don Juan in a certain way and made it well probably what it really should have been frankly but it, it came out in the movies a lot and he really wanted to be a good actor he really wanted to to do pretty well and as soon as they started making fun of him he just as a weak person just exaggerated his own bad bad behavior sort of like I'll show you and we talked about that uh, in the previous episode but what I didn't mention is that from 1942 on if as you watch his movies and almost all his of his movies there's some kind of veiled reference to the rape trial some to like some of the evidence to uh or to his persona as a guy who sleeps around and can't be corralled and you'll see that in almost every movie he his character even in the nicer movies his character is shown as being maybe someone who oh the woman puts up with him catting around on her and that kind of thing, kind of with a wink to the camera about uh, his behavior, which is really pretty abysmal. It shouldn't have been fun like that because mm -hmm. it wasn't a fun thing, not for him and not certainly for the, the women he was linked to. So anyway, I did want to bring that up. Um, I'll give you an example, though, that it went on for years and years and years forever. Uh, in the last year of his life, in 1959, he was on the Red Skelton show. And so Flynn was on his show, and he 
played also a bum uh, with, you know, with the bag tied to the stick over the shoulder and that whole deal. And he comes in and there's this round piece of metal and he goes, oh, what's that? Da, 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 da. And Errol goes, oh, it's a porthole. Brings back memories. And that is a reference for anybody who knew and they were laughing uproariously to um, at the rape trial. One of the women who said she had been forced to have sex with him uh, said that she looked up and saw the porthole and saw the moon through the porthole. And at the trial, one of the reasons he was exonerated is they proved that from where she said she was, there was no porthole there. And so they were making a reference to that, like, let's see, it was 1959, I think that show was on, or 58, and the trial was in 40, so 15 years later, they were still... That's sad, yeah. ...just hanging on to that. So thought I should uh, make a point of that when you're watching the latter films that uh, that is brought up quite frequently. Hmm. Okay, so those are all of my additions and erratum, so now we can go on to... Except for what the name of biting the goat's testicles off oh, is. Oh, yes, because he had a job biting off, not goats, sheep. Sheep. Sheep's testicles, that's how they would castrate the sheeps. And the, the terminology for it is dagging the hogget. That's D-A-G-G-I-N-G the H-O-G-G-E-T. Dagging the hogget. Okay. Back when he was in Papua New Guinea as like a 19-year-old or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just trying to make a living. Okay, well, maybe that makes uh, working at the counter at McDonald's uh, seem a little more <laughs> a little more desirable. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so we're going to do um, our films. We're going to talk uh, mostly, give you a, a list of our favorites that we totally recommend. These are the ones you should see. A um, couple of surprises, ones that surprised us that we want to recommend. And then maybe just I'll go through a couple of interesting stories about some of the films, in particular his relationship with Betty Davis, which mm-hmm. was quite fraught. Do you want to get started? Do you want to start with your favorites? Because our, our one and two favorites are the same between yeah. you and me. We've talked about them a bit already, but um, number one, Captain Blood. Number two, Robin Hood. And Robin Hood is probably the more famous of the two or the more remembered. By most people. Yeah. And and it's interesting because Errol Flynn did more Westerns than he did any swashbucklers. Don't know why. I guess they were popular enough. But in Captain Blood and in Errol, uh, Robin Hood, that swashbuckling, he does. He shines. He mm-hmm. is at his very best. And uh, Captain Blood is the film that made him famous. He was, it's in black and white, by the way. Uh, it's a seafaring adventure written by, uh, based on a novel by Raphael Sabatini. And it is, he's just the pinnacle. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the best. Uh, it's joyous. It's lively. It's romantic. Uh, Olivia de Havilland is in mm-hmm. it with him. That's it's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the first time they met. I think in the previous episode, we mostly talked about Basil Rathbone. That's true, yeah. So I won't get off on the Baz. We've also, we've also highlighted this movie before in oh, movies. Um, movies You Must Watch to Date My Daughter. Exactly. Uh, which was a different episode of the podcast. Yeah, so. exactly. I think, or, or perhaps must, must Love. I don't know which yeah. one it was. Okay. So there is that. So I don't know. Should we stop on, on Captain Blood? There's so much to say, but... I think we might as well move on with that one. Okay, get, yeah. get into Robin Hood, which is the... Uh, the Wait, mo- I do have a question. Oh, okay. okay. So you said that Captain Blood and Robin Hood, you kind of lit, put them together as swashbucklers. So would you say that swashbuckling as a genre doesn't ne- necessitate like being on a boat? Yeah. You know, I think probably strictly speaking, I mean, we could look it up. It probably does. But I think Robin Hood 
has every element of a swashbuckler except a ship. Yeah, certainly. He swings from things. Okay, not masks, <laughs> but trees. That's true, yeah. You're in he, point. <laughs> they laugh. <laughs> there's sword fighting. There's there's the... Old-timey the, clothing. There's yeah. the damsel in distress. There's the evil guy. I mean, I don't know. I don't see how one could not put that in that category. Although, yes, I think you're very right that it is not, strictly speaking, a swashbuckler. Okay. But... I, I can get behind that definition, though, because it definitely has all the, yeah, the other elements of swashbuckling. It has the same mood and the same, uh, he shows off his strengths similarly. Yeah, and as tights. They both have tights as well. Which oh, is, totally. I think is key. That is a key element. And we uh, should note that there's three years between the two movies, uh, Captain Blood, when he broke out in 1935, and then th- they made a few movies that we're not bringing up because in between because they're really pretty lackluster and really not that interesting. A lot of them are him in, you know, common dress or in the British Army or something like that. And uh, none of that particularly interesting. And then Captain Blood, I mean, uh, Robin Hood, total, total, just stand out. It had the um, the usual cast that uh, that he had, was working with at this time, sort of the the repertory company of Warner Brothers, uh, Alan Hale Jr., which we talked about in the last one, mm-hmm. and uh, there's Uma um, Una O'Connor, mm-hmm. who is a kind of always kind of played a the unattractive strident servant woman. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> quite a specific niche to be shunted into. But she, she was she's the uh, the 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 caretaker of yeah. Olivia to have, and sort of her nursemaid or whatever. Probably raised her from a babe, you know. And, oh my darling, oh my beautiful one. <laughs> but she does get a love uh, a love uh, connection in the movie. She does with one of the uh, one of the merry men, the bumbling merry men, merry bit bumbling merry men. And then there's also um, uh, Patrick Knowles, who I I don't know if I did I mention him last time. Is it the second? Secondary, he, yeah, he's Will Scarlet. Yeah, yeah. I did talk okay. about him and how he's 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 got everything. Like he's good looking, he's a decent actor, but he just doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't. Have, you put him right next to Errol, and you just don't even look at him, even yeah. though he's he almost as handsome. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting. But he was in a lot of films with Flynn as his brother or his second in command or vying with vying with him for the woman or that kind of thing. And in this one, he plays Will Scarlet. And the other person that we haven't mentioned is Eugene Pallette is in this, and he plays Friar Tuck. Mm. And he has a voice like this, and he's gigantic and round, and he's a great comic actor. And there was a movie that uh, he was in that we had watched where he, it's My Man Godfrey, where he plays the father, the rich father of Carol uh, Lombard. and uh, That's a great comedy. That's a great comedy. And, and it has butlers in, in it. You yeah. know how I love butlers. I know you love butlers. We're going to have to do maybe some butler movies. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe we should do an episode on Butler movies. Yeah, we should. We totally should because we already know you love Bunter in uh, the <laughs> Lord Peter Whimsey uh, series. So anyway, there's there's just this cast that goes on. There's there's Melville Cooper, who's the sheriff of Nottingham, and he's a bumbler too. He's sort of the bumbler on the other side, and he, kind of the comic relief. You just see him all the time in movies just around that period, classic stuff. And then there's Claude Rains, who uh, plays King John. Mm. So he's the kind of the main bad guy who's trying to get his niece made Mary and married off to a guy she doesn't love, who would be Basil Rathbone. Basil Rathbone. Who plays Guy of Gisborne. <laughs> I would marry Basil Rathbone. I would marry Guy of Gisborne. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Claude Rains, if you want to have a reference, if you've seen Casablanca, he plays Renault, 
the uh, one who goes off with Humphrey Bogart at the end of Casablanca. Yes, his so, beautiful friendship. His beautiful friendship. And so he is in The Adventures of Robin Hood, I think it's called. Not just Robin Hood, but The Adventures of Robin Hood. I didn't even notice. Yeah, me either. I, and, <laughs> and then when I look it up, I go, why can't I find it? Oh, it's under A. And for adventures. Uh. And then, again, we had the Basil Rathbone, who was not in every movie with Flynn, but he was in, a, in about three of them. Yeah. And all, and all of them, the, the best ones, too. Right. Maybe, maybe that's why. Hmm. hmm I had the thought of that. They off each other. They yeah. really do. He's, and he's wonderful. And, and as I said before, Basil Rathbone was known as the best swordsman in Hollywood. He was really, actually very good at fencing. But then he always had to lose to Flynn, which is kind of irritating. Right. And yeah. so Flynn is supposedly good. And he's flashy and he looks good and stuff. But you yeah. said he was kind of a, actually a wild swordsman. Yeah, a little bit wild. Yeah, exactly. Didn't he accidentally cut him? I think he did. In Captain Blood? Like a little nick on his face or something? No, that was apparently... And I don't know if this story is true now or not, but apparently Flynn got the cut. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm, I'm backing out of that story because I don't... I don't remember where I heard it, so I therefore do not know if it is true. Okay. So I'm backing out of that one. Uh, I hear a beep, 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 beep. <laughs> disclaimer, disclaimer. Disclaimer, disclaimer, waiver, waiver. Um, and then the other thing, though, that uh, other person in this that we should note is a guy named Howard Hill. Now, Howard Hill was the best uh, archer in Hollywood, if not in the world. The guy was amazing. He really could split an arrow. He really could split an apple in the air. He was amazing. And he taught Flynn, you know, how to do the... the bow technique. The bow techniques and everything. But when you watch the, the archery contest where he's, you know, vying to get the, the golden arrow. Marianne. Yeah, the, go- yeah. the golden arrow, I guess, from Maid Marian. A very, very famous scene. Very good. At the end, there's Robin Hood in his disguise. And there's this tall, dark-haired guy who's, you know, nobody, no no character or anything, who's shooting. And you really get to see him shoot and everything. That's Howard Hill. Oh, okay. So he was in charge of all the archery, and he... Cameos in the archery contest, Right, as And apparently um, he worked with Flynn a lot, and they were became very, very good friends. And there is a film somewhere that he ma- uh, Flynn made, kind of a documentary, where they went out on the boat, and they caught fish with arrows. Oh, wow. Yeah. I want to see that. Yeah. We should look and see if we can find If we do, we'll do a little addendum and tell you about it if we can find it. Okay, cool. But they went out on his, I don't I think it was this, I think it was still the Sirocco or maybe it was the Zaka. Those were the two boats that, that Flynn had. And so, anyway, he's a, he's a key player. So everything about this film is just such a delight, including the Technicolor. This one's in color. Yeah. And I mean, those costumes are going to just they pop, pop your eyes out. <laughs> they pop and the cheeks, the cheeks on those uh, especially on Flynn, they're so... The rosy merry men. Yes. <laughs> and the way they look, oh! and, and they put their fists on their yeah. hips, and they look, <laughs> Yes, there's so much. If you're going to make a drinking game out of that movie, it would definitely be like, drink whenever anybody heartily... You would, like, you, that's all you need. You'd chuckles. be drunk by halfway through the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be unconsciously drunk. You'd be fl- in a Flynn state. Yeah. Now, uh, one other thing about Robin Hood, again, Flynn's hugely successful, he never feels like he's making enough money. He's always trying to hold them up for more money and so on and so forth. And he's, there's just something about he became very quickly incapable of controlling or disciplining himself. They just, I think he just had a real self-destructiveness, but it was always done in a, in a guise of fun. So at one point during the filming of Robin Hood, I guess he had his pilot's license. He, got, he had a plane and he flew down really low and was buzzing everybody in his airplane. 
Ooh. I know he got he got in real trouble at the studio. Yeah, and so after that, they you know had to like ban him from doing that and try to discipline him and everything. But that's the kind of stuff he would do, and thinking it was just hilarious. You yeah, know? wow, really acting out. Yeah, really acting out, and especially probably while they're trying to actually shoot, and that's a day's shooting lost, and, and a it's a very expensive yeah. film. And uh, and the other thing about a Robin Hood is there were two different directors. There was a William, I'm not sure how to say his name, Keneally or Keeley. Uh, and he was filming, but apparently, first of all, Flynn didn't get along with him very well. He And I guess this guy, he didn't have a whole, maybe a whole lot of panache or flair. And the studio thought he was taking too long and he just wasn't able to discipline Flynn at all. So they ended up bringing in Michael Curtiz to finish the film up. Anyway, it's a great film. Totally recommend it. Now, number three, we were kind of differing on that. So why don't you go ahead with your number three? Yeah, um, it was kind of hard for me to choose, actually, because there wasn't, like, a clear one that stood out. Your number three is good. Um, There are a couple, yeah, there's, like, a tier, I think, of, like, four or five of his other movies that could Mm -hmm. fill the number three slot. But I'm making you pick a number three. Okay. Um, (laughs) Fine. Then I will take... (laughs) Oh, definitely not the Seahawk. That's his other, that's the other one. People consider that or have i've read that that this is a pinnacle for flint it's a pinnacle of his it's another his, his swashbucklingness in 1940 so it was a couple years later it is i'm sorry we were going to list the three mm. worst ones this goes on my of my three worst ones it's terrible it's turgid it's yeah. turgid and boring uh and queen elizabeth appears in it in the guise of flora, flora robeson and he again is put in the galley like he is you know and it's it definitely like seems like yeah it was very much captain blood sort of copy cat movie but, but there's no olivia yeah brenda marshall plays his love and she's i mean she's very pretty but she's not interesting at all she hasn't she really doesn't have any star quality she's just very pretty and the pacing is off and everything. Oh, it's yeah. terrible. Anyway, sorry, I was teasing. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I would say, I don't know, Gentleman Jim was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so was uh, Perfect mm-hmm. Specimen. Yes, just pick one. Ugh. I'm going to make you pick one because we got to do three. It's a th- our three list. <sighs> um, okay, I will pick Gentleman Jim. Okay. You want to tell about it? And we talked about it a little bit last time too, but it's um it's like the biopic of Gentleman Jim, the boxer Corbett. That supposedly uh, Jim Corbett, yeah, who supposedly revolutionized uh, the mo- sort of modern style of boxing with a lot of footwork and hopping up and down and jabbing in and out and moving around and agility, tiring right. your opponent out, and so you get to see real boxing technique in the film, which is pretty cool. It feels a little meatier than you'd expect a biopic of the time. Um, there's a uh, Who's the blonde woman in this one? She's feisty. I like oh, her. yes. What is her name? Because um, she and Flynn actually got along extremely well. They didn't have a romance or anything, mm. but she just thought he was the cat's pajamas because he was so nice to her. He he pulled out his very best gentlemanly yeah. conduct with her. I know. I could see her face in my head. Come on. You're supposed to be able to just like whip these out. Yeah, but I'm too old now. My my I, This is going. This name thing is going on my, my brain. She was totally. She's in the uh, in the edge Smith? of darkness. Oh, Alexis Smith, the blonde woman. Yeah. So he's he uh, acts opposite Ale- Alexis Smith as the woman. She's really nothing. Nothing in the movie. She's just really kind of a a prop, a pretty prop for him to have a woman. But she's gorgeous, mm-hmm. and and Alexis Smith does not, in my opinion, have much charisma on screen. Though she was a Broadway star, mm. and she sang and danced on Broadway and was very very successful. But she never really made it big in, in movies and uh, 
She just kind of has a pretty face. I feel like she had a feisty scene or two. Yeah. She's a good supporting she actress. Did. But the person he was really actually acting opposite was Ward Bond. So he played the giant, big-voiced, bluff-hearty Irishman who's the slugger, who's yeah. the old-style guy who just goes in and just, you know, there's no dancing, there's no jabbing, there's just, you go in and just wail with full, uh, just main strength and so uh he goes up against uh gentleman jim and and it's felled eventually yeah but yeah i think we can give that away because that happened in real life i mean and you know it's coming um and then he has a trainer who's like a crotchety boxing trainer a la rocky yeah it's a it's yeah exactly (laughs) it's very rocky-esque so that's a delight that's a that is a delightful film i do love that film a lot it's got a lot of heart to it. The film came out in 1942, mm-hmm. so it's a few years after Robin Hood, and it's before his fall from grace. And But you know, I think talking about it, it's not my favorite. <laughs> Number three, I guess. Gosh darn say. you, you stuck it in there, you trickster, you. I, <laughs> I, yeah, just talking about it. Okay, well, like... I'm going to talk about my my okay. third favorite that I, I made myself choose, yeah. and, then, and then you can go again. Cheater, cheater, cheater. <laughs> pants on fire. Okay. Don't ask me to be other than I am. <laughs> I never would. Never, never, never. Okay, so my third choice is Dawn Patrol. The Dawn Patrol, which uh, is about a World War I uh, flying squadron in Europe. Uh, basically, it's sort of like those the sop with camels and the single-engine planes and flying up there and they uh, get going up against the Red Baron and Baron von Richthofen. I guess he's the same guy. Red Baron is Baron von Richthofen. And um, so he he appears in that. There's no women in it at all. It's a complete buddy movie. Uh, David Niven shows up in it. Uh, and David Niven was one of Errol Flynn's very best buddies. He hung out a lot at Cirrhosis by the Sea, which was Errol's home, which we talked about before. And uh, they are basically um, fighting against the Germans in these dog fights above Europe, and the death rate, the fatality rate is enormous. And they're constantly getting in these new, young, very young men who have not been sufficiently trained. And one of them ends up being Errol's younger brother younger brother and they know that these guys they're just not going to make it they don't have the wherewithal like if one of them ends up surviving and making it to being experienced it's amazing so there's a, this huge amount of pain and, and the futility of war the futility and the of sort war. of frustration of yeah the wasted life and everything right and Errol Flynn and David Niven are flyers and their commander is Basil Rathbone. Hey. Yay. Love him. Anyway, and Basil Rathbone is the one who has to pass on the orders. And some of them are stupid orders. And it, and a lot of this happened during World War One, where they would be told to do things that were just absolutely futile or even stupid. And they had to follow orders. And uh, Basil Rathbone has to pass them on. And he starts to go nuts. He can't handle... First of all, they hate him because they hold him responsible even though he's not. And he absolutely hates being in his position because he can't even fly anymore. So he can't even accept the risk with the others. That he asks them to take, yeah. Exactly, exactly. He's not allowed to do that because he's in command. So that's really the setup. And it's very bro-y. And they're kind of almost, they almost like live in a tavern. And there's a bar. Lots of drinking. Lots of drinking. And then there's a song that became the the song that that they would play on the record player. And it, it went something like this. So stand by your glasses steady. This world is a world of lies. Here's to the dead already. 
Hurrah for the, the next, next man, man that dies. Yeah. Yeah, one one or the other, close <laughs> enough. And so that that is the theme song throughout the movie. Yeah. And it's a it's a quite a, a story of heroism and and it's very exciting. There, there, there's all kinds of uh, aerial fights that you get to see with these planes. And what's very interesting is that this film was done in 1938. But in 1930, that was the original one. So it was remade only eight years later. Wow. And in the original one, uh, Richard Barthelmus, who uh, I think we talked about him during the Marlena episode. He was one of her lovers. Oh. And he was a silent star, big, big silent star who never really made it into sound pictures. I kind of understand why. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is in it. And he's kind of the the one who's supposed to take up the swashbuckling mantle from his father, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. But really Errol was the one who left you know, swooped in and took that prize. But he's in it. And he also was a very long time lover of Marlena Dietrich. Oh, okay. So we got a couple of them. But anyway, it's the same story pretty much. Uh, the same dynamic, and very interestingly, the part that Basil Rathbone plays as the commander of the entire squadron who goes crazy is played by Neil Hamilton in this one, and anybody who used to watch the Batman TV show, <laughs> Commissioner Gordon, he ended up being Commissioner Gordon on that show, but of course here he's young and good looking. Anyway, so those are some connections, but they redid it, and the second one in 1938 is so much because of the, the actors they cast, so much better. And also the directing is a lot more dynamic. I think they'd figured out how to make a dynamic film with sound. Whereas 1930 is only a couple of years after sound came in. So they're trying to do this outdoor thing, and the sound is not that great. There's a lot of ambient noise and revving of engines, and then you're trying to hear what people are saying. And the camera work is not as dynamic and fluid because mm. it took some years for them to kind of nail down that technique. So there is a, both a technical difference and a, a difference with the acting. But the interesting thing is, if you watch them both, they did film some really cool aerial stunts in the first one. And you, you'll see, uh, or even some of the, the planes taking off from the ground, they take clips and put them in the, in the second movie and save money, oh, cool. and thereby <laughs> save money. <laughs> so you see the, the same thing. That's pretty interesting. Like they'll take uh, the flying, them flying up above and, ha- and doing the dog fight or going, uh, you know, just flying in formation. And then they'll cut to a close-up of Errol Flynn or a close-up of David Niven <laughs> signaling to each other. You want to hear an interesting little uh, factoid about that period and flying? Yeah. Back in those days, in those uh, World War One days, they would often lubricate the propellers and so forth with castor oil hmm. to keep them running smoothly, uh, because you know everything was in short supply, I assume. And castor oil, when the propeller would whip around quickly, a little bits of the castor oil would fly off. And in those days, they didn't really have windshields sometimes, or if they did, it was just a partial. And so the castor oil would blow back onto the pilot, and, you know, they were covered, but there was still skin available. And the castor oil would get on their skin, and they would absorb it through their skin and so forth. And do you know what one of the effects of castor oil is? No. It's used to uh, help you have bowel movements oh. because it loosens your bowels. And, and and for a while there, the pilots were getting terrible diarrhea. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And they had to change uh, change the oil they were using. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. That's uh, Dawn Patrol. So highly recommended. So just to recap, Captain Blood. Captain Blood. And these are in order of love. Of, mm-hmm. And they are in, in order. The Adventures of Robin Hood, and for me, 
the Dawn Patrol. Dawn okay, Patrol. now you cheater, cheater, pants on fire. <laughs> hey, I just needed to work. My process is just a little bit more. <laughs> I, I know. Uh, yeah, not like you had all these weeks I'm to think about it. I'm more process oriented. <laughs> okay, what is your true third? Um, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, The Perfect Specimen. Just because okay. of like an emotion, feeling more of an emotional connection with that movie. Now, Perfect Specimen, that's an interesting one. Now, that was going to be my my the one I was going to choose for my yeah. surprise one that I like. So I'll, I'll pick a different one for my surprise one so we have more. But I I think that's a, a very good choice, mm-hmm. actually. I enjoyed it a great deal. You want to say a little bit about it? Yeah, I think we might have mentioned it was hard to find. Like, I don't think we rented it at Scarecrow. I think we found it on YouTube and ended up watching it. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, so we weren't able to rent it on DVD. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But it's kind of a fun one. So Errol Flynn, he plays the perfect specimen, which is uh, a gentleman who's raised like in a rich family estate, and he's trained to be phys- per- physically perfect and to be incredibly knowledge about many subjects and ready to take up the business mantle. And but he's completely isolated from the outside world, and so he—I don't even know if he's met a woman other than like their, <laughs> their maid or whatever. Yeah, and, right. Like, well, he's also, and this really um, links into at the time this movie was made, 1937, by the way. So this is one of the the ones in between Captain Blood mm. and Robin Hood, but it's the good one between there. It's the one right before they did Robin Hood, uh, so 1937. And at that time in the early 20th century, there was a whole thing about genetics and about nature versus nurture and you know being able to actually perfect the human species. And this was a big thing in the zeitgeist. So this is like a screwball comedy based on that premise. Right. It's very, very funny. And he's got uh, the love interest in it, who actually is an important character, mm-hmm. is played by Joan Blondell. And she's, she, I don't know, she's a great comedy actress. And so she, more than just being like pretty and elegant and stuff like that, she's a little bit silly and kind of spunky. And she's kind of rough. She's very rough hewn. Yeah. Joan Blondell was always, a, she was like the woman of the streets. She was she was a, a lower class, blonde um, you know, she was never slender. She uh, was full figured, um, wisecrack and smoking cigarettes, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. I think she crashes her car into the through the gates or whatever on purpose because everybody's been trying to get a interview with this guy, right? Because they're all hearing about it, and she works for a newspaper, and so she crashes through and pretends it was an accident, right? And then they end up going on kind of escapades, and he gets his eyes open to what the world is like. Oh, and his name. Oh, his his name. I just I just saw it here. His name was Gerald Beresford Wicks. In the movie. <laughs> That's clunky. And that what's really uh, fun about this, if if you know old movies, which you don't know as much about the actors and stuff, but originally this was supposed to be played by Robert Montgomery. Mm. And Robert Montgomery was a great comic actor on stage and screen. And he was slender, but he was dark-haired. He was a little bit smaller than Errol. Uh, but he always tended to play sort of the upper-class twit or the wise, cracking, rich guy in the top hat and tails. He was a very elegant person. And uh, so a little bit different than Errol, who was much more robust and athletic, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, again, just for FYI, uh, Robert Montgomery was the father of Elizabeth Montgomery, who was Samantha on Bewitched on TV later. I think you said that in a previous episode, actually. Did I say that before? I'm getting getting senile. And the woman who was supposed to play the Joan Blondell role was Marion Davies, Hmm. who... Uh. William William Randolph Hearst's 
mistress. Okay. And she was supposed to play that, but it didn't come through. And the person who wrote it was the same person who wrote It Happened One Night. Oh, there we go. And that totally makes sense, because in It Happened One Night, which is a fantastic, really, the first romantic comedy, really. They go on the road to get away, and it happens again in this film. The two of them go on the road to get away and try to get married. That's a great trope in a movie. So I guess that's the original romantic comedy trope. It seems to be, yeah. That's a good good point. Two two people from different worlds uh, go on a road trip together. (laughs) Right, and there are a couple other uh, character actors in this one that Mm -hmm. we just got up rampant. One is Edward Everett Horton. And he appears in a lot of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. And he's always kind of, oh, 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 you know, very, oh, 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 don't do that, Fred. Oh, oh. High, high strong. <laughs> high strong and kind of goofy. And he's kind of a short, not not real good looking older guy, but very funny. And then there's just, I'll just mention this one guy no one will care about. But his name is Dick Foran. Foran? Foran, F-O-R-A-N. Uh-huh. And he's one of those faces where... You just think, I've seen that guy a million times. I don't know his name. He's always kind of the nice guy or maybe slightly jerkish who the lead gets the woman away from, Mm. you know. So always loses the woman. And he's somebody that I think women of that time in the 30s and 40s would say he was really good looking. But look him up, people. Look him up. He's got kind of a... Uh, like he, like, he's, he's very dad. Yeah, isn't yeah. he dad? He's totally dad. Yeah, totally. and and he's like somebody. And I look at him and think, no, nah, never in a million years. But he's just the kind of guy that I know my grandma. Yeah, you know from that who was from that period. Uh, he's got like he, plump cheeks. Does he have plump cheeks? I think so. Well, no, not really. He's just smiling. Okay, but he's just <laughs> anyway. He's just not. I don't know. Yeah, he's not really. Yeah, and then um, he looks—he looks like one of your uh, your college buddies who played r- my college tennis buddies? racket with you. No, I'm oh, just okay. in general. Yeah, yeah, kind of like uh, yeah, he, and kind of like an upper class yeah. guy. Okay, so anyway, uh, I agree. I think it's—I think it's a delight. It's charming. It's very light. It moves. Mm-hmm. It moves not only in the pace of the repartee, which is really pretty funny mm-hmm. because. Joan Blondell actually has a lot of good lines. She's very sassy. She really puts those snooty upper crust people in their place. Yeah, so there's a little class commentary. Oh, yes, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. But it's interesting because his, I think it's his grandmother who's running this experiment on him, played by Mae Robeson, she, she's also a feisty woman. Yeah. So she comes to see Joan Blondell with respect. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of good in that way. Yeah, the characters have good arcs, I'd yeah. say. So it, so it doesn't feel... Fluffy. Right. And Flynn, in his element, does boxing. He does gymnastics. Mm-hmm. He, you know, rides a horse. Mm-hmm. He drives a car. <laughs> he does everything. <laughs> so I agree with you. I, I, I think that's a very good choice for number three. So I think we were going to pick one or two uh, that we were kind of surprised were, were good. Yeah. Uh, there's one, a big one for me that I, I don't, for whatever reason, maybe it was the Technicolor, but I remember pretty well, is Dive Bomber. That's a... Is, very interesting choice. I liked it, too, and I really didn't think I would. It looked like it was going to be really boring. Yeah, totally. Um, and that was like a pre-war movie, was it? It was right. It was filmed the year before, right the year before that the United States got into the war. So 1941, I believe. And interestingly, it was released after Pearl Harbor. Oh, so yeah, 1941 is when it was. So it was filmed before, but then released after. Yeah. So it has. So that's why it has kind of an interesting 
take because America was still in the isolationist mode. And Hollywood generally, I think, was they pretty much kind of were they just trying towed to help. the line. Yeah. yeah, but they were trying to help people see how bad it was in Europe and that we shouldn't, like Casablanca. Yeah. That's a whole thing is, a, is an allegory for, you know, Casablanca with the White House. Uh-huh. Rick, he's in isolation. He doesn't help anybody. He doesn't he doesn't put his neck out for anybody. Mm-hmm. And then there's all this stuff going on. But then in the end, right. he ends up allying himself allying with himself, France. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So the whole thing is is that kind of uh, uh, metaphor for kind of I guess Anti- how certainly powers in Hollywood thought it should go. Interesting. Without saying it. Yeah. So Dive Bomber is, Dive Bomber really doesn't take a particular position on the war or anything like that, but it is about the United States Air Force, uh, the, the pilots are, are absolute heroes, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a really, and it's based on real life. It's a very, it's an interesting story. Yeah, and we talked about this too. It's It was based around the invention of certain technologies that would help pilots like fly higher in order to dive bomb right well what was happening is is they would get up to a certain height and they would they would pass out they go blank and and apparently they figured out correct me if i'm wrong is that because when you got to a certain height you your blood wasn't pumping up to your head and they would pass out because they didn't have enough um, blood going to their head so basically how to how to create the pressure needed for you know you to stay conscious but they were actually crashing and dying Mm -hmm. because they didn't come to in time to pull the plane up right. as they were plummeting to the earth. So you get to see a lot of sweating and a lot of like people tr- acting like they're looking dizzy <laughs> and fading in and out. Uh, you get to see a lot of that. But somehow it's still a good movie. I it don't know. Is. Well, you know, and the thing is, is that they show the technology and they show the real machines. Yeah. So And they look so clunky and old and they're turning dials and they're, you know, there's no plastic or anything. It's made out of metal. And, and so you're actually seeing the real paraphernalia. And apparently they um, were uh, spent a week on a destroyer filming because there were, you know, that was going to be part of the scene of where they were at. And the Navy was okay with it because they okayed it. But the uh, the seamen did not like having them these these oh, hoity, film actors yeah, these who hoity, are not yeah, fighting. Apparently, <laughs> they didn't like it. And so what they would do is they would. Uh, I'm not sure they would run the engines or they would take off with the planes all night long to keep them awake. During filming. Yeah, during <laughs> filming. Sucks. So it was like really <laughs> terrible for, for everyone. Fred McMurray told that story. And Fred McMurray is the um, co-star with Errol Flynn. And he's he's the pilot. And Flynn is uh, plays a naval surgeon who notices this problem and, and wants to get in on doing the scientific research to figure out how to solve it. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, they're pretty good together. Yeah, totally. You know, very different personalities. Fred mm-hmm. McMurray's much more phlegmatic, much more grounded. Even, you know, even when he plays a bad guy, he's does he seems to be very much logical. even Stayed, straightforward. Yeah. yeah. And he's, FYI, he star, Fred McMurray starred in um, Double Indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck mm-hmm. before this. And later in his last years, he played the father in My Three Sons on TV. So most people of my generation, like when I first saw Double Indemnity and I saw Fred McMurray, I freaked out. Oh, I wow. freaked my mind. I couldn't wow. get it right. Because he plays the best. He plays the calm, sweater-wearing yeah. dad. And in Double Indemnity, he's a murdering insurance agent. Yeah. So he was picking up 
women and calling them dames. Yeah. You're like, it freaked my mind. That's so funny. Oh, totally. He does have a very dad. He's also a very dad. He is very dad. Yeah. Yeah, he totally is. <laughs> Interesting. We need to watch Double Indemnity again. Fantas- fantastic film. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a podcast on it after we do it. Okay. Like, like we did, like we have one coming up for Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon, which I think yeah. you'll like a lot. And then we can do one for this one, uh, Double Indemnity, because it's rich. So I'm going to pick for my surprise delight, Don't Bet on Blondes, which is actually a film that Flynn did before he even got famous. It's the second film in Hollywood. The first one was Case of the Curious Bride, which we did talk about before, where he had no lines and he was just on for a couple really quick, not even 30 seconds each. And in this one, he has lines and he's probably on, though, in the movie, maybe less than five minutes. He's very handsome. He's wearing a suit. He's dapper. He, he's pretty delightful. And he um, basically play, plays the suitor to this young, rich woman. And she really likes him. And he seems like a nice guy. He doesn't play a jerk or anything. But the lead in this movie, who Flynn is not, he is an insurance agent. And for some reason, he has put out a policy. The policy will pay off if this young, rich woman marries. So it's in his interest to keep getting the premiums and not pay out is to keep her from getting married. So he then interferes with her relationship with Flynn and uh, kind of cuts him out. Mm. So it's very funny. Uh, it's a very, very silly and weird premise, but yeah. really pretty delightful. The film is quite short. I think it's it's only, actually, it's less than an hour. Really? It's only 59 minutes. They really cram a lot in there. They do. It, it was it, fun, yeah. But it's the right length. Mm-hmm. It's pr- it, probably because it was like the second on a double feature you know, film. And the lead is Warren William. He was big at this time. And he was big, particularly in the B-movies, but he always played the district attorney or the, the, uh, the, the crusader or the, you know, and he, or the, sometimes he'd play the bad guy, but in this one, he's actually a delight. And I'm really surprised. He's, uh, uh, kind of a roué. He's a, a man about town. He's, you know, very athletic. There's scene where they go to his apartment and I guess on a daily basis or whatever he has a trainer come in and they they wrestle don't they do they wrestle or they do karate or something and and they're in these outfits and they're throwing each other around and and it's very funny it's very funny and so anyway he puts on his wiles and of course in the midst of his intending to keep her from getting married he falls in love with her right yeah so there's all that kind of it's very silly film but it actually holds up and it's pretty delightful and it is inhabited again by the casts uh, the the repertory company if you will of warners and so they're very uh people who are used to working together uh people who have a lot of experience on the stage and screen who are you know doing these small bit parts around and so they come off very uh, lively and full in a way full fledged fleshed because you know this character okay this is the grumpy dad this is the flighty mother this is the okay they are types but they do them very very well that's my pick for my surprise yeah i like that one that is surprising because especially because he has such a small part in it but yeah it's it's, it's good it's good it's really solid yeah so um anyway i was saying that i didn't i thought that generally from like 1942 going forward the film's quality, they just don't seem as high to me. They're not they are not as bright. They're not as funny. They're not as original. Yeah. Um, I know you liked um, uh, Edge, is it Edge of Darkness, which was... Yeah. But that, that was in 42. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So those still early anyway. Right. Yeah. That one's kind of kind of a heavy handed like war propaganda or like uh, holding out against a resistance film. Yeah. Yeah. In Norway. Norway. And so he plays the young resistance fighter and the people in this town who are you know bakers and whatever they're getting together to fight um, the occupation and uh, they you know band together and sing their song and stuff like that. But it's it's actually good. I don't know. Well, it's like it had heart. It's pretty dark, too, yeah. because um, he, well, one of the, uh, the one of the women characters, she ends up being raped in the, or at least they imply that she was mm-hmm. in the, in the film. I well, I mean, the very weird. beginning of it is, um, it opens on the town and it's still because there's so many dead bodies lying around and stuff. So yeah, it is pretty dark. 43, I'm sorry. It was filmed at 43, mm-hmm. Edge of Darkness. So right you know, right in the middle of the war. Um, and uh, Flynn stars with Anne Sheridan in that. Yeah, uh, Who's she's another good. blonde actress who, God, she just never got a chance. I Occasionally you'll see this spark and just go, man, that's somebody with some talent. And unfortunately she really got pigeonholed and never really got a chance to be be the actress I think that she could be. But they got along extremely well mm-hmm. in, in the film, which is interesting. You know, sometimes he could just pull it off. And uh, apparently this was, you know, again, right, right in the time of, of the rape trial and the difficulties. So I guess another one of my favorites, uh, just generally speaking, it's, again, it's low on the totem pole. I would say watch these other ones first. But is the film right after Edge of Darkness, which is another war film. It's called Northern Pursuit. I'm not recommending it because it's a great film. I'm recommending it because I think it's pretty fun. Errol Flynn plays a Mountie. <laughs> and Germans come in a, in a submarine in, up into Canada, in the Yukon, up in the water. And then they come into Canada. And then they're crossing Canada and doing stuff. Basically, they're trying to get to this place where before the war... See, they're playing it... Germans were playing a deep game. Well before the war, they had stockpiled airplane parts. Right. So that they could build an airplane in Canada <laughs> and take off and uh, do damage I from can, there. Yeah, whatever their objective was. To fly into America. Yeah. Because see, in those days, the planes didn't have the capacity to fly, to fly over the ocean. Right. So that's one of the reasons that America could be isolationist. Is like, they can't get over here, mm-hmm. except with their submarines uh, and their ships. So anyway, that's what it's about. And I tell you, there is dog mushing, there is horse riding, there is fights, there's just, you Going know. Going off the edge of cliffs. Oh, and yeah. Sacrifice running. Sacrifice and. Running and punching and uh, it, it's quite, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I found it. It just doesn't stop, man. It's pretty good. So anyway, I, I, I recommend that as a sort of a second-run one. Now, what's uh, what's interesting about this period, and I think this is the first film, like I said, after the rape trial, and Flynn certainly would have been pretty stressed out and everything. And while he was filming this this uh, Northern Pursuit, he collapsed with tuberculosis and was had to be hospitalized for a week. Hmm. So they said that... Um, they didn't really know kind of what caused it, but my guess is, and it's pretty clear that from this time, he began to have a lot more physical problems. Probably, first of all, because he was drinking even more, behaving yeah. even bad, more badly, but I think stress also, because I don't think that stress ever went away. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Not not them saying that in great sympathy for him. It's just it's just a sad situation. Period. Well, I think those are I think those are the best. We don't want to go through every single film in his repertoire, but I thought those I think those were the ones that really stand out. Now he did have uh, a resurgence right at the very end. He became very bloated and and he was incapable of remembering his lines and he just was absolutely circling the drain there near the end. He was had so addicted such mm-hmm. alcohol, so much damage and he's only 49 and if you look at him he looks like he's 70 yes, yes, yes. <laughs> i'll have to count how many times hey, said that I, know, in this I, know, podcast. I know i did it on purpose i know <laughs> so anyway uh those those are our recommendations and co- just a couple of asides a little bit of information about some of his other films one is uh he did he played custer yeah twice Twice. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. That was. Okay. And one of the better ones was They Died With Their Boots On. And that was done in 1942. It was a good year for him, apparently. And he co-starred with Olivia de Havilland in that. And she played Custer's wife. And it was the last time that they worked together. They did nine films together, and that was the last one. And apparently it was very poignant for for both of them and very sad. And a lot of people say that, say that that in the parting scene between Custer and his wife, they can see a, like a real feeling between him and Olivia. I don't know. I, I don't see that so much, but it's it's a pretty good film. Not great, but it is their last film together, hmm. so that should be noted. And it is often listed as one of his better films. And then the other thing I just wanted to touch on is uh, there he did two films with Betty Davis. One was called The Sisters, where... He plays uh, Betty Davis's husband, who's a ne'er do well, always you know going off with other women, not responsible financially. She's got a child. She's got to you know be take responsibility and so forth. And they're living in like San Francisco or San something. Fran- yeah, and there's a San Francisco earthquake happens. Yeah, and uh, point of interest. Yes, and I think well anyway, I won't I won't tell you the the plot. Because I actually like this one. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not too bad. But uh, apparently they got along okay during this filming, generally speaking. She was fairly complimentary, and Flynn could not take criticism of even the slightest thing. So they they seemed to get along all right, even though he wasn't a terribly nice guy. Because basically, you know, he made it, you know, let me know well, that she wasn't pretty enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he was talking about behind her back a bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, there was uh, really the real problem was that she was angry about the, well, the the patriarchy, shall we say. Yeah, the treatment by the studio. Yeah, the treatment by the studio, because basically they had uh, Errol Flynn in Four Sisters, was the name of the title. Uh, three. Three Sisters, sorry. And she's kind of like going, well, that has kind of some connotations. Yeah. <laughs> that aren't, aren't too savory. <laughs> yeah. So she, she played the main sister, and she had two sisters, and then they wanted to put his name above... The, the title. title. Right. And so she insisted that her name also be above the title. So they were both above the title. But she had to really fight for that. And the other thing that she had to do uh, was, well, she didn't have to do it, but that she noted was that um, he was making uh, $1,000 more, no, $750 more a week than she was. And this is like, this is in 1938. He Or 19, yeah, 1938. So just been a couple years ago, he had become... Famous. famous and she had been working and was and she was a top top star she was a bigger star than he was or, or certainly had more you know experience and so forth and she was she was the one of the title characters in the film mm-hmm. and he was more of a, a sort of a secondary lead 
And so she that really, really irked her a lot. And he um and he was unattracted to her and, and so he he just could be very wrote her off a bit. Unkind. Yeah. yeah, he could be very unkind. And he also felt that um well later on they did another film together and this is where things these issues really came to the fore and it was called Elizabeth and Essex. And so it was about Queen Elizabeth. Um this is actually the next year, nineteen thirty nine. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, in, and she was supposed to be elderly, and Essex was sort of the last man that she ever loved, and he was a young, handsome guy in real life, mm-hmm. and so they were playing that. Do you know what the age difference is between Elizabeth and Essex? My understanding, I, I'm not sure, but I think like she's like around sixty, and he's supposed to be like so thirty. So it's like wow, quite a quite a gap, quite a gap. It didn't look that big, but no. it was big enough. And Olivia, Olivia de Havilland was in this one too, and she played a small role, and she was not in the romantic relationship with Flynn uh, but it was uh, based on a play and the play was in, had was in written was written in blank verse which Errol could not manage to do and uh, Maxwell Anderson was a playwright who was a very very famous playwright at the time and he, he couldn't handle it but at the same time he thought it was stilted and sounded bad and, of course he did. <laughs> yeah, of course he did. Michael Curtis directed it, but it, it was more, it did come off like a stage play. I, I would say so. And I actually enjoyed it. So they decided to do away with the verse. Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. And just have it be regular dialogue and that kind of thing. They really had hatred on this film. Hmm. Well, first of all, she, again, he was making a whole bunch more money than she was. And she was the title character. Well, one of the title characters. Um, and... She was an acknowledged actress. And so he hated her because she seemed to think she was a great actor and that he wasn't. So that got to his ego. And then her ego got harmed because he was very good looking and she was made to look old and not very attractive. And she was getting a lot of shit from people generally in Hollywood because she wasn't the pretty, you know, Ann Sheridan type, you know, Betty Davis. I mean, she wasn't bad looking but she was unusual you know she kind of had like those big eyes and the skinny little face and and okay i don't know if this is true i think it might be but in the series feud which was about betty davis and joan crawford and their supposed feud with each other betty davis recounts a story where she overheard jack warner watch a film and said who'd want to fuck that Mm. you know so she really really got a lot of misogyny directed her way because she was a very strong woman not always a very nice person, yeah. Uh, to be admittedly. So anyway, a lot of that was going on, and apparently during a break, Errol Flynn went off in his usual thing, and he'd go and he'd go hunting or whatever. And he found he found this pig, this baby pig, and he gave it to her, which wasn't very nice. As like a commentary, because he didn't mean it very stuff. nice. Yeah, he didn't mean it in a nice way, hmm. you know. Uh, and then on her side, she wasn't very nice. There's a scene in it. This is a very very famous story. Where Errol plays Essex, who has to come in the door and take this long walk up this carpet to the throne. uh, And then she speaks to him and she slaps him. So he rehearsed it over and over again with the stand-in, which he, first of all, he was pissed about that because, well, she wasn't there supporting and rehearsing with him. So she comes in for the scene and he walks up 
and she and she's got the all these rings on because she's playing the queen and these heavy rings, and she she hauls off and wallops the shit out of him like she really hits him and he says like his ears were ringing and well, all this. So here's a quote that I have about uh, the. Here's a quote I have about the, the incident. So she slapped him, and then his quote is, Then all of a sudden I felt as if I'd been hit by a railroad locomotive. She lifted her hand, loaded with heavy jewels, and had given him a right hook. He felt his jaw going out, and then he felt a click behind his ear and saw shooting stars and flashes. He felt deaf. Boy, I think that they're kind of building this up a bit much. Because, you know, she was kind of a small woman. But it, he wasn't expecting it, and uh, so it had to be redone. And uh, so in his autobiography, what he says is, he says, um, but what am I going to say to the great Miss Davis? He decided to go to her dressing room. She was such a big wheel, even though I was getting more money. And he, and he was. He was getting $1,000 more a week than she was. He knocked on her door. She told him to come in. Uh, she stood in front of the mirror and did not turn around to talk to Errol. She was fixing her makeup, and Errol was standing behind her like a schoolboy with cap in hand. He started, Betty, I want to talk to you about something. She shut me up instantly. Oh, I know perfectly well what you're going to say. But if you can't take a little slap, that's just too bad. That's a pity. I knew you were going to complain. I couldn't do it any other way. If I have to pull punches, I can't do this. That's the kind of actress I am. And I stress actress. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, that's the story. So anyway, he wasn't willing to accept. And of course you wouldn't if somebody's really hitting you. And he says... um, I will give I will give you one more try. Do you get me? One more to try. You are a great actress. I know it. So certainly you can learn not to hit me with the whole weight of your fist the next time. And if you can't do it, well, let's leave it at that. And she says, what the hell are you talking about? And he says, just what I said. <laughs> so that was the, supposedly their confrontation, according to him. And he said they went back. And then in the next shot... She perfectly, completely missed his face and made it look absolutely realistic. Yeah. <laughs> of course, because we know that she could. And so then later, apparently, on the, um, in the shoot, there's a point where he hit, he smacks her on the behind. I don't know if you remember that, but there's a... a I don't really remember that. that. Anyway, he, he hauled off and he walloped her for real, really uh-huh. hard. And she looks at him and he goes, I just couldn't do it any other way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So that was their dynamic. was very, very nasty. And apparently what happened later, um, Betty Davis was being considered to be loaned out for Gone with the Wind. Oh, okay. Although I, it, I, I, I don't know whether she would have, how well she would have done that particular role, but it, she was, she was picked. But they said if she was, it had, she had to, Errol Flynn had to go with it and play Rhett Butler. Oh. So they wanted Rhett, but him to be Rhett Butler. I don't Good know. Good thing for them that didn't happen. That would have been well, one long Well, it didn't. Apparently, shooting. it said it didn't happen because she refused the role. Mm-hmm. Because she wouldn't act with Flynn. I can understand. It was terrible. You know, of course, it was the role of a lifetime. So that year, um, Gone with the Wind was filmed with Clark Gable and um, Vivian Lee. She played uh, in a film called Jezebel with Henry Fonda, where, again, she, all, she played a Southern Belle as well. And it took place. And that was, actually, Jezebel's a pretty good movie. Uh, and she does a, a good job acting in it. So they never acted together again. But that was, uh, they both missed out on the chance of star-making roles. But I think the right people were, were chosen for it. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And, I mean, Elizabeth and then ex- Elizabeth and ex- Essex. Essex. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth and Essex 
I enjoyed watching. I don't know if it was like a great movie, but I enjoyed watching it and it was, it is pretty dynamic, you know, yeah. maybe because you can feel the energy of the hatred or whatever, but. That could be. There's sparks flying. Yeah. That's for sure. That is for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, Betty Davis, when she was younger, she tended to be a fairly twitchy actress and she would always kind of be gesturing and moving and, and sway, you know, jumping in her seat. And, and so she did, she did a lot of kinetic kind of very vibratory action. And, and she does that in this role. Um, and I guess, Flynn didn't care for it. He liked floral robes. And then, well, first of all, they got along okay. And there was no romantic thing because Flora Robeson was quite a bit older than him. Uh, and so she played the very regal queen, but a very boring queen. She's the queen in uh, the Seahawk. Yeah. It's very boring. And she gives a speech. And Betty Davis was really trying to show, because she was supposed to be in love with Essex. She was supposed to show her being torn and her her heart being broken and her sense of insecurity, even though she's the queen. And I thought she did that pretty well. Uh, I think so too. I agree. We really felt like she outshone Flynn in terms of acting anyway. Well, she was generally a better actor. Flynn was was just a a charm, a a big, a big human charmer. Yeah. You know, and he, he does it very, very well. And I, I hope that even though we've given you some of the dark side that you'll enjoy these films and as the light side, for not only for Flynn but for all the other people who are in it and uh, creating, uh, contributing so much talent and genius to the to the film of the period. Don't you think? Definitely. Do you have anything else? You I feel like talking about? I don't think so. Although as soon as we turn it off, I'll come up with, oh shoot, yeah, should have said that. But anyway. Uh, for people who are listening, and look, it sounds like there are some people listening out there, we are very excited to have you, you know, in our conversations. And feel free to contact us if you've got any suggestions or ideas or anything like that. And what are we doing next? What's our next one going to be after this this long three episode Errol Flynn? Did Elaine we May or Lonesome Dove? Okay, yeah, we're going to go for either a book, depending if I can get Lonesome Dove reread. You know timely manner and we're also looking at elaine may as director uh, and perhaps writer yeah she's very excellent great comedic um very great yeah yeah so we'll talk a little bit about her all right thank you thank you if you want to get in touch with us shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening (laughs) 